You are listening to A Taste of Romumu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romumu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So this is our second class because uh, if you want to note the development of the, of the image of the Divine Feminine in Judaism, you can't skip the Book of Proverbs. The Book of Proverbs is one of the fundamental sources for sacred imagery around divine women. And it is probably a pretty significant bridge, I would say definitely a significant bridge between whatever existed before monotheism, right? whatever, whatever split of male and female divinity existed before monotheism, and the later Talmudic Kabbalistic views of, of Shekhinah. Um, because what the imagery in the Book of Proverbs dips into earlier mythology, but, and, but it later is used because it's connected to the Torah, who is then connected to the Shekhinah, it's later used uh, for um, imagery about the Divine Feminine much later in Jewish life. So we're going to look at the Book of Proverbs together. And um, I guess I should start by saying, have any of you ever read the, uh, the wisdom stories in the Book of Proverbs? Is this a book that's at all familiar to anybody? Okay, I figured. We don't read it ever publicly liturgically. The, the Book of Proverbs is never read liturgically. So most Jews don't get a chance to read it because it's not read for a holiday. It's not read for anything. It's a, um, it, it's something that people study if they happen to have leisure to, uh, leisure to study it. Uh, but and and that's really unfortunate uh, for lots of reasons. But one of the reasons is that in the Book of Proverbs we have the only really significantly um, gender, female gendered image, uh, divine image in the Bible. Um, so we're going to take a look at it. And you have this in your packets. This is cappuccino number two. Okay. Uh, thank you. This is, wait, why am I in page 80? Because you went up to page. Ah, I see. Oh, here we are. Yeah. Okay. Yes, that's that's where I'm looking at. It's page 24 of your packets. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I actually had occasion to read this passage today to my rabbinical students because um, it is quoted at the very beginning of Midrash Tanhuma in the 7th century uh, CE um, to speak about to speak about Torah. But what you're going to see is that it's not about Torah. Um, it's At least it's not ostensibly about Torah. Um, the entire book of uh, Proverbs comes from the wisdom tradition. There are certain books in the Bible that are not primarily about law, and they're not primarily about story. Uh, they're wisdom books. They're books that, um, that seek to uncover what the best way is to live. Um, the books that go in that category are Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, Proverbs, uh, books that discuss, like, why are we here? What's the point? You know, why do people suffer? Um, why do people die? Uh, those, the, and, and they're not particularly oriented toward Israelite religion, meaning there isn't a lot about, there, there is often stuff about God, but there isn't a lot about obeying the law or doing ritual observance. There's really more about what is life about. And the book of Proverbs is one of those books. 
So this is from chapter 8 of the, and it's ostensibly written by a king, uh, traditionally by King Solomon. Um, traditionally, uh, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and um, Song of Songs are all written by King Solomon. Uh, but anyway, it's in the voice of a king who's giving his, uh, giving his people advice. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 3, uh, verse 13 to 18. And uh, you guys are going to notice um, notice uh, the, the end. We do use liturgically of this, so you're going to notice this. Uh, will somebody read from 13 to 18 in the English? And I'll say something about the Hebrew in a minute. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, the man who attains understanding. Her value in trade is better than silver, her yield greater than gold. She is more precious than rubies, all your goods cannot equal her. In her right hand is length of days, in her left riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant, and all her paths are peaceful. She is a tree of life to those who grasp her, and whoever holds on to her is happy. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so the end, some of you probably recognize, right? She is a tree of life to those who hold on to her. Right? We use that at the very end of the Torah service. It's the last thing we sing before the Torah is put away in the ark. Um, but let's take it out of that context for a minute. And what do we see in this passage? What do you notice? Well, there's a, only a, there's, oh, here's your um, there's only a change in genders between the uh, the person who is seeking wisdom and wisdom herself. Okay, the person who's seeking wisdom here is he, right? And the person and and wisdom herself is she, right? That's why you see both pronouns. Right, what else do we notice? What what kind of picture is being depicted? What's the what's the advice here? Why should I? Why should I be interested in wisdom? Why should I care about wisdom as opposed to, you know, frittering my life away on uh, on wonderful frivolous things? What is wisdom going to do for me? Okay, so she's going to make me happy. All right, she might, although it doesn't exactly say happy. Um, no, it's interesting. It says. Um, more precious than gold, but it doesn't say you're going to be rich. Right. She's just more precious than the riches. Okay, she's in her, she's in her riches in some way. Right. Well, she's going to give you a long life. Yes, all right, so if, I'm, if I seek wisdom, I will live long, all right? Yes, you have to work hard to attain wisdom, right? She, uh, it's not, not so easy. Right? And she provides peace, right? She creates, right? Her paths are peaceful paths. Um, and she's like a tree of life to those who hold on to her. Um, and, right, and whoever holds on to her is happy, right? So wisdom, right, does bring us happiness. Um, and notice that there's a lot, you can see her as a statue on a building, right? Like, wisdom personified, right? She's got har a har rich harvest in her arms. Um, so I want you to notice, uh, so do we know from this passage, like do we know what exactly what wisdom is counseling? Like it's not, she's not saying, right, do X, Y, and Z, right, just that I should pursue wisdom. 
And in fact, at the end, uh, the verse after what we read, God founded the earth by wisdom and established the heavens by understanding, right? God actually needed wisdom to found the creation. And she's a tree of life. So I want to point out, yes, please go ahead. Was that no, a hand? No, sorry. Um, I want to point out a couple of interesting things that are going on here. One thing is this root ashray, olive shin resh. Right, appears a couple of times. Right, it appears at the beginning. Right, happy is the man who finds wisdom. Ashrei adam matzachachma. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. And at the end, her supporters are happy. Um, also, alef shin resh. And you will also see um, when it says in her hand are riches and honor. The yada osher vechavod. You hear the same. It's not exactly the same root. It's an ayin shin reish, but uh, you hear uh, you hear the similar root. So does that remind you of anybody I talked about last week? Does anybody remember Ashira? Right, the goddess, uh, right the uh, the right the main the, the main goddess of the of the Canaanite pantheon. So the word Ashray appears more in the passages about wisdom than anywhere else in the Bible. Like, it's not actually a very common word, and in these passages it appears a lot. Now, I can't tell you exactly what that means, but my sense is that this author is trying to bring that earlier image into a monotheistic context. And I think that not only because of the roots of Shinresh, but because of the image of the Tree of Life. Right, when Asherah is depicted in iconography in the ancient Near East, she's depicted with two trees. She's always depicted with trees. And a tree... Cappuccino number three. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna wait for the end of the cappuccino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And a tree, right? Remember the menorah, right? In the in a in the mishkan, right? right that that tree is is in some way a divine symbol. Uh, so here again, the tree. She's she's the tree of life. So that's um that's at the very least imagery from an older. From an older stratum of Israelite religion. So you're saying maybe that this moving the symbol of a tree from a from an earlier foundation into the modern. Yeah, I think that this author, who's aware of this divine mother figure, right? And one of the things you will see, if I get a chance at the end of class, I'll show you. When you look at the ways that mothers of adult sons, particularly adult adult kings, are depicted in the Bible. Um, they're always they're portrayed as advisors to the king, um, and they are um, they they often have their own throne, right? They have they have a throne in the throne room. Uh, when the king's name is listed in a genealogy, his mother's name is always present. His wife's name is never present. His mother's name is always present. So the mother actually of the king took on a particular. We know that in the kingdoms around the uh, ancient Israel. The mother of the king actually had a court title. She had land. She had officers. Like she was a member of the king's cabinet, um, and it was in this mythic role of the of the. No, I don't have water. Actually, water would be great. Um, incredibly, incredibly. Um, in the. Um, 
so the, the mother of the king stands in it in the human world for the mythic mother of the gods in the uh, upper world. That's how it works in most kingdoms in the ancient Near East. Not in ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, right, they're already beginning to do away with this image. Um, but the, the adult mother, the, um, and in the book of Proverbs we see this, the mother is advising her children about what is wise. Um, father also, but particularly the mother takes on this role. Um, probably uh, this image of wisdom advising the people is connected to the image of, um, of the mother advising right, the human child. Here wisdom is advising from a, a divine place. Um, so this, of course, will eventually become the Torah. This will eventually become the Torah, right? This, um, this uh, image of wisdom, right, will eventually will be identified with Torah. That's why we sing, it's Chayim Yilamach right? That's why we sing. Um, uh, but here, it seems to mean something slightly more general than that. So I want to show you um, another wisdom text that is more personal, right? Because this really could be depicted as sort of like Lady Liberty, right? It's not, she's not really personal, right? She's just gender feminine sort of for the hell of it, right? But it's not really, um, right, there's not a particular personality to her. So now I'm going to, um, I'm going to show you a different, um, a, a more personal image. Were there a lot of instances where mothers were killed off by their husbands for jealousy? Um, so here are the here are the ways that that's relevant. Sorry. Remind me of your question. So, remind me of your question. My question was, it just seemed as though a lot of kings were very suspicious of losing the throne. Yes. And that systematically they were killing right. their wives, which would be the mothers, and right. in some instances actually their children. Right. And you had just represented that very often the mother's name was... Yeah. You know, one that they highlight and they said the mother of. Yeah. The king's so mother is usually his ally, usually, because her position depends on his. Um, the places where it happened, where that's relevant, we hear, for example, that the, the uh, um, King Joash deposes his mother, Maka, for setting up an Asherah in, in the temple. Right? He deposes her for being a supporter of the cult of Asherah. Um, most kings are fine with the cult of Asherah, but, you know, this is a particular, um, uh, it's King Yoash. He's right before Josiah. Um, and, um, he, um, he deposes her, and she loses her position. Uh, her name, uh, her title, she has a title, Gvira, means the lady. That's the name of the king's mother. Um, so there's a case. It's more the exception rather than the rule. It's the exception rather than the rule. There is, um, there is a, a, a queen mother who when she loses her position actually deposes uh, actually deposes, uh, deposes all the all the at least according to the Bible deposes all the she kills all the princes and she takes power 
Um, and her daughter actually hides one of the babies in the temple, and when he grows up, she deposes her mother and puts, and her husband, the high priest, puts him back in power. So it's a very interesting story. But, the, but when you read the matriarchs of Genesis, this is why this is important for reading the Torah. And you know how the mothers are always responsible for getting the air where he needs to be, how, how Sarah you know, sends Ishmael away, and how Rebecca makes sure that Jacob gets the, right, gets the birthright. Those are probably mythic uh, stories because of the queen mothers had exactly that role. Right? It was the queen mother who jostled for her kid to get into power. Right? So those stories that we still read are probably echoes right, of an ancient political system that was, was real, that was really, uh, you know, it was really happening just like that. Okay, so let's, um, let's talk about... Um, all right, so I want to look at chapter eight. For scrolls, yeah, please. I, I mean, I'm just, you know, you've got the two trees and you've got the Torah wrapped mm. on two yes, um, yes, yes. trees. Uh, how common, was that the only way to preserve writing? Was that common? It's a great was question. That? Originally, um, the Torah scrolls weren't on poles. They were, you know, they were put in a, you know, a, a cabinet when they weren't being used. And um, I don't know how old the two the two tree system is. Uh -huh. I don't I don't think it's this old, uh -huh. but I don't know for sure. It's a good question. Um, it is, of course, you know, powerful that they're on trees. You know, that we still right. call the poles of the Torah a seen trees. Right. You know, just like the sacred tree from the Bible. That's pretty cool. But I don't actually know how old that system is. You know, in a Sephardic Torah, it doesn't look the same way, right? It's in a metal case, and it's got a, you don't really see the Yetzim. It's a, um, some of you might have seen this if you've ever been in a Sephardic Is it like opens up? Yes, exactly. Like you stand center. it vertically, and you open yeah, I've it. I've seen that. It looks like a little yeah. cabinet. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to look at chapter 8. Um... So, um, this is on your page 26, if you have your page 26. 26. There are really two pieces of this, and we're going to go on to, uh, this is going to continue on to 27. Um, the first part of it is, is um, kind of um, similar to what we just read, and the second part is, is really quite different. Um, does somebody want to read? It's a little hard to see where, but the first paragraph right there, that's verse 12. Does anybody see where that is? Yeah, exactly. If you wanted, that'd be great. I wisdom live with prudence. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Let, let, let me do it. It's too hard in the light. Never mind. That's okay. No, I, I'll, I'll, I'll get it. I'll get it. It's all right. I wisdom live with prudence. Shakanti is like Shakina, by the way. Right. I attain knowledge and foresight. Um, the uh, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. Uh, to um, 
uh, shun pride, arrogance, and the evil way, and duplicity in speech. Mine are counsel and resourcefulness. I am understanding. Courage is mine. Through me kings reign and rulers decree just laws. Through me princes rule. Um, no, I have to look at the evil. And great men and all the righteous judges. Those who love me I love, and those who seek me will find me. Riches and honor belong to me, enduring wealth and success. My fruit is better than gold, fine gold, and my produce better than choice silver. I walk on the way of righteousness, on the paths of justice. I endow those who love me with substance, I will fill their treasuries. All right. So she's actually claiming responsibility for all economic success, right? And uh, right, she's the advisor of the government, right? So she's the, um, right, and she's the decreer of righteousness. So you want to be wondering who this lady is, you know? Like it's, uh, um, usually God gets put in this role, right, of the dispenser of wisdom. Um, and she's the giver of produce, right? She's, again, being described as the one who bears fruit, right? So the tree image is still there. Um, and, huh? Yes, yes, absolutely. Right, the, the, right, the cornucopia image, right? She's the cornucopia. So now we're going to, now it's going to get interesting. The Lord created me at the beginning of his way, at the beginning of his path. So already hold on to that, right? So that means that whoever this wisdom person is, she's the first creation. She's the first creation. I am the first of his works of old. In the distant past, I was fashioned at the beginning, at the origin of earth. There was still no deep when I was brought forth, right? No springs rich in water. Before the foundations uh, were, uh, were rooted, before the hills I was born. When God had not yet made earth or fields, or the world's first lumps of clay. I was there when God said, I was there when he set the heavens into place, when he fixed the horizon upon the deep. When he made the heavens above firm, and the foundations of the deep gushed forth. When he assigned the sea its limits, so that its waters never transgressed his command. When he fixed the foundations of the earth, I was with him as a confidant a source of delight every day, rejoicing before him at all times, rejoicing in his inhabited world, finding delight with mankind. Now children, or sons, now Banim, listen to me. Happy are they who keep my ways. He discipline and become wise, do not spurn it. Happy is the man who listens to me, coming early to my gates each day, waiting outside my doors. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from Adonai. But he who misses me destroys himself. All who hate me love death. Oh my God. Whoa. 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 Yes. Whoa. <laughs> okay. So what's so? Tell me about the whoa. What's 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 the reaction? You go first. The thing that strikes me the most, I, I've never heard this before, that I love is the idea that prior to what we think of the creation, the creation of the phenomenolo phenomenological world, this this essence that is that is being presented as female. That was the primal, initial creation that danced on Zion and encouraged God while then creating what we recognize as the world. I love that. I, I have never heard that before. And it, and it feels, it feels good. Did you speak up? I'm sorry. I was trying to find, I, I lost it. There was that case where I was there, um, where there was no, uh, there was no, no, no. So this is, 
distancing herself, like right there, before, almost before the separation, where it was just, even before each other, we made another goal. So. Right, before there was chaos and void. Right. But there still is a difference between her and God. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, in other words, it doesn't seem like when we talk about the Shekinah, we often talk about the female aspect of God as, they're, as if they're equal, yeah. or they're at the same, or there's some different... But there seems like that she came first, but there was a God first. Oh, yes. And yeah. in the classical Kabbalistic understanding, Shekinah is like that also. She comes oh, really? last. I mean, she is the, you know, she's emanated from God. Um, but this is actually, all, this is not really, I mean, Judith is absolutely right that this is not the same as the Kabbalistic understanding, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because here wisdom really isn't being described as a deity per se, right? She's God's companion, but we don't know what that means, right? Right, she's, and for, 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 um, for having this at all, right, for telling it this way at all. Or, or for the creation of wisdom. Right. In other words, there's nothing there, God creates wisdom and then takes her as a confidant. Right. So... So it's actually, it's, it's very ambivalent, right? For which one? The one that goes like Yes, yes, it's right here. The Lord created me. Here. Adonai Kanani, right, Kanani Rishi Right, right, right. And then take it as a confidence. So was God lacking in some way? Right. Well, it appears that, I mean... The way that Genesis is different from most of the myths of the ancient world is that God's companion is not other gods, right? We're God's companion, apparently, right? We're God's partner. But here, there's this intermediate figure who's being uh, interposed, who isn't labeled a deity, right? She's not called a goddess, but she's not a human being either, right? She is some something in between those two things. Um, and you can see why later Jewish tradition identifies her with the Torah. No, wait, why right. is she not, what, what distinguishes her from a goddess? Well, she's not called a goddess, and she says, says that she's been created by God, right? In Jewish tradition, usually being a created being means you're not a deity, right? That's usually how it's formulated. Are there, are there deities that are created in Jewish tradition? No, okay. no. no. Um, but, right, in the ancient Near East, right, deities give birth to other deities. And one of the things that's very interesting here is that she's really being portrayed as God's daughter. It's not said that way, but Amon really means nursling. And Amon is a, is a foster child. So it's not daughter, because that would be biological, and the Bible really avoids biological metaphors about God. Right? Wives, children, right? we don't do that. But she's being described as God's um, word in some way, and she is playing with God's stuff. I mean, she's, um, right, it says that, um, I, I love this, where is the, right, um, in, um, 31, they, they translated it, rejoicing in his inhabited world, which is really pale in comparison to the Hebrew, where it says, Misacheket lefanav b'chol eight, she is playing before him at all times, Misacheket really means to play. Right? Um, and um, she is playing with the globe of his world. With the globe of his world. With the, so it's like the little girl is sitting at God's feet and, you know, it takes the world like this and is bouncing it up and down like a ball. You know, that's the image. Um, and the image of wisdom as God's daughter actually gets picked up by Philo in the second century, the Jewish philosopher. Um, and then the Shlina, Philo, who's a, an important Jewish philosopher, like 
the turn of the millennium, you know, like he's in Egypt, right? He's part of a, an order of Jewish monks and nuns, basically, the Jewish ascetics who study Torah. And he, um, uh, he depicts wisdom as God's God. Like, that's, uh, that's an image that he's familiar with. And the first time the Shechina appears as a part of God, not in the Zohar, but earlier in Sefer Habahir, which is one of the earlier mystical works, she's not God's wife, she's God's daughter. So there is still this sort of mythological desire for this image, um, which seems a little more uh, palatable than wife. However, I do have to say Misacheket can also have a sexual connotation. So if you wanted to read it as, you know, God's playmates, you know, in a sexual way, you actually could, right? So there is that possibility here also. So, I mean, I really love the question of what is the motivation here, right? This is not, there is no place in the rest of the Bible that is that creation is described this way, and there's no place in the rest of the Bible that wisdom is described this way. This is the only place. So the question is, how come? Right? And I think that this author is trying to work in the earlier uh, traditions of the sacred feminine. I think that there's, you know, there is a desire to bring in you know, a goddess in some way that will actually work with the monotheistic system. And so the, um, the solution is to introduce this intermediate figure who represents the platonic concept of wisdom, right, and who is God's confidant but not equal, and who is God's playmate but not relative. Right, so right, you, and uh, and who is very easily, um, uh, what's the word? Who is very easily depersonified, right, and becomes the Torah. But she gets repersonified again in later mystical tradition. But you know, she becomes the Torah, um, and all of these verses that are used to talk about her eventually in Jewish tradition become used to speak about the Torah. Um, but, yeah, okay, please, just, please, please, this is the way I, I read this. It almost sounds to me, were it not for her being created, the whole rest of creation might not have happened. Right. It may have been created to delight her as a result of her encouragement. But right. without her, nothing else. So in a way, while she's not the creator, she is causative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, right, she says that, right? God created creation in, in consultation with me. Yes. She takes some credit for it. Yes. Right, she's clear about her, you know, God is the creator, but she takes some credit for being in the mix, absolutely. Um, and it's really interesting that this author, you know, depicts her that way, um, as, uh, right, as the first creation. But this is actually almost like a Gnostic view, if any of you are familiar with Gnosticism, in which God sort of has other companions, you know, who are emanations of God, who advise God and get God in trouble and stuff like that. Um, she has this. Uh, she has this quality of being. Um, you could, if you wanted to, say that she is like an aspect of God, right? It's hard almost to understand her in any other way. Because uh, what is she? Really? You know, it doesn't say. You know, what, what? What? What is she? Right? She's not a person. She's not an angel. Right? At least she doesn't appear to be an angel. Right? She's not a demon. You know, she's not an animal, you know, <laughs> you know, what is she, you know, um, there's, um, there's, that's for her to know us to find out. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. The question is, you know, the question, what is God?
Right. I mean, you've got this mysterious whatever that creates an earth. Right. Right. Well, right. I mean, that's actually a good question, right? So, why, right? So, what's God? I mean, never mind what's wisdom. What's God, right? Um, but, but that's actually, I think, the mystical question to ask here is: so, how separate is she from God? Right. What is this author trying to convey? Right, is the author of the book of Proverbs, I can call him King Solomon for the sake of argument, right? What is he trying to tell us? Right? He wants so he wants us to pursue wisdom, right? The goal is right, we're supposed to follow her directives. So how do we do that? Right? How do we know about wisdom? How do we know what she wants? Um, how do we know what she thinks we ought to do? Um, it seems to have something to do with God, right? Because it says, right, the beginning of wisdom is fear of God. Right, so that's but that's only the beginning of wisdom, um, but that's uh, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the Book of Proverbs is connecting piety to wisdom. Right? You can't have piety without wisdom. Um, you can presumably you can't have wisdom without piety. But also also peace. So is it, so is Solomon's reign a particularly warlike reign or not right. warlike reign? Solomon's actually known for making peace. That was actually his. Um, but I don't think this book was written by Solomon. Right. Just to say that. But um, right. but Solomon is known for his peacemaking and actually for his tolerance, for his religious tolerance also. Um, and the Book of Proverbs is not a warlike book. Like this is not Sun Tzu. Right? There's no advice here about how to conduct the war. You know, the advice is about how to be economically prosperous, how to get along well with your neighbors, how to get along well with your politicians. You know, that's what the Book of Proverbs is about. Um, there's very little in here about the military. Um, so that's also interesting. Right? The, the, there's an emphasis on peace. There's an emphasis on getting along with people. Um, okay, I want to look at where is wisdom at the, at the crossroads. Here she is. All right, so on page 27, up near the bottom. Who hasn't read who would like to read? Yes, can't see. All right, Any, who can see the print? Where are we all reading if I could see it? Uh, we're at the bottom of page 27. Okay, Mijanu, go ahead. Judith, I'll catch you later. Wisdom has built her house. She has fueled her This is, uh, I'm really, really struck by this. Now, this is a little bit different than the imagery we just saw, although it's connect It's certainly connected. Um, so, some images that you notice here that are striking to you. She's being portrayed as she can, she has her own resources, right? She has the ability to send out messengers. She has a big establishment, right? But so, she's like a absolutely. wife. I mean, she's like supposed to say, come to dinner, you know? I mean, or something, you know? Like I prepared a few She's like a she's like the hostess. Yes, she's the hostess. Okay, so she's right. So she's so she's host like, right? Um, which could also be 
I'm, like I'm, a salon. Yes, I, I mean, I get this sort of a, a, more like a salon, right? She's like, like if you think about the kind of meals, right, where people would go to discuss philosophy, right, right. Absolutely, she's being connected, again, the cornucopia image, right? She's being connected to abundance, she's being connected to... So she could be, right, I mean, right, so she, we could be seeing her as someone who wants to be equally available to everybody. Or we could see her that way. Yes, absolutely. Um, but also really enjoy. I mean, to give up simpleness and live, like, you know, taste all this stuff, come and really enjoy it. It's, you know, be, like, and because it's such a physical image, it's like enjoy the body. It seems to me, enjoy the senses. Yeah, it's, um, there, I mean, some of the book of Proverbs is really concerned with telling you who not to have sex with and what not to do. So there definitely is some asceticism in the book, but I also think that there is a sensuality here, right? You, know, you should eat, you should drink, you should, you know, there's, there are definitely yeah. sensual images. Um, there's also a shrine image here. You see the pillars? The pillar, yeah. I'm curious about that. Right. Why there are seven. Right, right. The house, right, bayit in Hebrew doesn't only mean home, it also means shrine. Right? So this could be a house, like, you know, any house that you would invite somebody to. But Bantabe, she's built her house. It can also mean which she's built, it's like the temple, right? She's built her shrine. And seven pillars, right, are like the seven days of creation, right? So seven is that magical number. Right? So, and she has hewn these seven pillars. This is her house. Right? Nobody else built it, she built it. Right? So she's really being uh, portrayed as the owner and the architect of this house. Um, and she's the cook, right? She mixes the wine, she sets the table, right? Um, right? Right? Well, well, it's very similar to Asia Kaya, which is in the same book. Right, the poem Asian Pio, right, the woman of valor is all is from the very end of the book of Proverbs. It's very similar. It's a very similar image. Um, she sent out her maids to announce at the heights of the town. So she has these narots, these girls, right, who are being sent out um, to um, right to tell people, right, uh, come in a right, so come to my house. Now, that they're going out to the heights of the town um, has something to do also with prophecy, right? The prophet is often going out to the heights to speak. Right. Um, when Josiah came down, he, I mean, like, putting out the temple, didn't they destroy the high places? Yes. yes. Now, it's a different word, Bama. Yeah. Different word, but yes. So, that also implies shrine. The high places also implies sacred place. And so, what word are we using here? Uh, here it's Mirome, right? Like Rama, right? Rome, the heights, right? Mirome, Agape Mirome, Karit, at the heights of the city. Um, and if you look at the end, there's their root, Aleph Shin Reish again. Ishru Baderech Bina. Now they're using it in a totally different way to walk, but it's the same root, Aleph Shin Reish, that I was telling you about, right? That sounds like Asherah. Ishru Baderech Bina, walk in the way of understanding. Um, so again, there's the image of, and this is a common mystical image across cultures, right, of eating and drinking, but this eating and drinking is metaphysical eating and drinking, right? It's, it, has, it may have to do with the physical, right, but it's mixed in with the metaphysical, right? That this, what she's serving, right, is not, 
right? It's not lunch, right? She's serving uh, wisdom, right? Um, and of course, if you're smart, right, you you eat what you're being served, right? So can I ask yeah, please. Does, does they give any clues to how one pursues wisdom and understanding? In other words, they're inviting you, right, to this, but how does one actually... So you got to read the rest of the book of Proverbs, because they do actually have stuff to say about that. Um, but mostly, Proverbs is advising people to pursue the middle way. Right? The middle way. Right? To be prudent. Right? To not... Not be too, um, right? Not to pursue uh, the sensuality too much, but not to be too ascetic, right? Not to pursue power, but not to shy away from it. Like you, a lot of the Book of Proverbs is about pursuing moderation. It's also about being polite to everybody, right? Getting along, not running around with, uh, um, not running around with loose women, right? You're supposed to pick uh, pick the right kind of woman. Um, um, but there's a lot of really. Huh? Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. It's not written from a woman's perspective. We should not assume that. I don't think this book was written by a woman. Um, this book is really, I think, addressed mostly to men, which doesn't mean women were forbidden to read it, but the, the character here who is seeking wisdom is always male. Right? And the woman who's, right, this is true of the Kabbalah also. They wrote about the divine feminine all the time. Did they ask any women about it? No. Like that, so we shouldn't assume that because these texts are talking about women, that they were written by women, or that they're necessarily giving us women's perspective. They might be telling us something about men's experience of women, right, at this time period. Like they might be telling us something about, right, how did male seekers understand what women are, right, and why would they use that image here? Right? Well, Proverbs has lots of stuff that fits with Jewish tradition. I mean, there's nothing heretical in Proverbs except for this lady. Um, it's, uh, it's actually a very conservative book in terms of the way that it depicts morality. Um, but, you know, how would, how would women have understood this figure, assuming that she existed for somebody other than this author? Um, I don't know how to answer the question because the person who's writing the book seems to me to be writing from the perspective of a male writer, right, who clearly um, has veneration for this, for wisdom. Right? But that doesn't mean he's writing from a woman's perspective because um, I wish we had those. But it does mean that we get some idea of what, how women were viewed by this society, right, because the views of the society are going to come through in the writing. Right? So it gives us some idea of how women might have been experienced, or maybe how women might have experienced stuff. Um, and it gives us some idea of how, uh, of, uh, how people, um, like, in what ways the masculine and the feminine are depicted in myth. It gives us some idea of that. Um, but I, um, yeah. And it could be, now we shouldn't assume that all seekers of wisdom were men. We don't know that, right? There may have been women who influenced this book. There might have been women seekers. We know, for example, that in ancient Israel, there are, there are women called wise women. In the book of Samuel, there are two instances uh, where um, a woman steps forward to give advice to a powerful man. In um, one case, it's the king, and in another case, it's a general. Um, and the woman is called the wise woman, like 
a wise woman of Abel, a wise woman, and she's named by her town. They don't give her a name, but she's named by her town. The wise woman of Abel, the wise woman of Tekoa. And those women seem to have some sort of societal place, like their job is to be the wise woman. So that, so we don't know really what that institution was. It might have been an oracular institution, like these women might have been oracles. Um, but we know that they existed, at least because like, the Bible talks about them, um, and shows powerful men being in dialogue with them. So this image, this uh, sort of um, philosophical image of wisdom could be affected by real wise women, right, who were actually advisors of kings and advisors of important people. Uh, in the same way that in um, Scandinavia, the image of the fates, you know, the Norns with the, with the thread, you know, and the, they live at the base of the tree of life and they, you know, measure your thread and they tell you your prophecy. So that's a myth, clearly. But there were real women called vulvas who were prophetesses who would go around and tell, tell you, you know, for, I guess, for, you know, a dollar, you know, your baby's fate. You know, that was a form of spiritual practice. So the, the real people and the myth are connected. We don't know exactly who came first. So here also, right, there were probably real wise women, right, and this wisdom, right, in addition to being a reflection of ancient Near Eastern myth, is also a reflection of what might have been a real institution, right, of wise women who, you know, did gave prophecies or advice or whatever it was. In, in the do tend to do that. People don't like to give up their symbols. Like they just don't like to. It's it's you know it's not even rational. We just don't like to do it. And when you do, right, then you get what's called the return of the repressed, right? If you if you stop down an image, it tends to pop up in another place. It's like your aggression, you know, like you push it down one place and then poof, there, you know, there it is. It's the same with myth. Right? You uh you take an image that you decide that oh we don't want this image, let's get rid of it. Boom. <laughs> You know, it just pops up somewhere else. Um, and, you know, in Judaism, it pops up as the Shlina. In Christianity, it pops up as the Virgin Mary, right? It just, uh, and the Virgin Mary, look how exactly she is this image. She's the mother of the, of the deity, right, of the powerful young man who is taking his role, right? She is, right, and she's, um, right, she is semi-divine. Right, and she is, you know, depicted as, you know, in some way supporting his, right, kingship. Exactly the same image, right, as the queen mother, right, and as the wise woman who's advising the king. This stuff just does not go away. Like, if you look at Roman um, early paintings of the Virgin Mary, she's a crown and a baby. She looks exactly like the goddess Kibbele. Like, you, they practically just, you know, change the title of the painting, you know? It's like, it's the same image. Um, so, the narrative changes, right? The theology changes, but the image tends to remain the same. Which might be why Judaism was uncomfortable with image. Because if you keep the image, you kind of can't get rid of the idea, you know? So, there was a way that by trying to become imageless, Judaism was really trying to make a very radical break with the past. And it 
partially succeed. Not entirely. Partially. Well, Islam. Well, Islam got it from us, right? I mean, they they basically got that directly from us. Muhammad, interestingly, it's it's a little different. Christianity grows out of Judaism. But Muhammad, who does learn from Christianity and Judaism, is in direct con- is in direct conflict with the pagan culture. He grows up in a vibrant pagan culture, where there are beginning to be philosophical questions asked, and he basically provides an alternative to paganism in his culture, um, which becomes a very very popular, and then also spreads its moves by wars. So basically, wipes out the pagan culture of his time because it was very con- they found it very convincing, and you know more and more people sign up for it. Islam is actually more radically non-imagistic than Judaism. Um, and, and Islam, while Islam does have female figures that it venerates, doesn't really have like the Shekhinah or the Virgin Mary in the same way. Islam actually managed to uh, not to do that. Um, but what's interesting is if you ever go and look at the history of the Satanic Verses, does anybody know what these are? Um, the Satanic Verses? Um, so in the Quran, apparently Muhammad originally wrote this idea that Allah had daughters, and he was had daughters, and it appears to have been from a critical perspective. This is not from the perspective of Muslim theology, but from a critical perspective, he appears to have been trying to include the paganism of his time by taking the the goddesses who were very very important at the time and including them as Allah's daughters. And immediately realized that this was a bad idea. Like this was not going to work for his monotheism, and so he unwrote it. And he said that was the satanic verses. The Satan inspired them. Right. So, um, so that's. Um, but you can actually see he does exactly this. Muhammad attempts to do exactly this, and then he decides that it's the wrong idea. Um, it, um, it is, and to this day, you know, Islam doesn't have the the, 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 the powerful female image in that in the same way. Do you know about when that gets suppressed? I mean, I mean, very clearly here, at the yeah. very least, though, the male perspective is very inspired by women. Absolutely. Then what? Maybe you get to that later on. But like, what happened? What happened? What happens to wisdom? What happens yeah. to her? Yeah. yeah. It's a great question. So we don't. All right. So I'll say what I think that we know. The Bible um, depicts sort of a, a, a pitched and rather violent conflict, right, between paganism and Judaism, or between what it calls idolatry, right, and Judaism. It probably was never really like that until the exile, right? There may have been monotheistic kings that were more monotheist and less monotheist, um, but until the exile, right, probably there's official religion and there's folk religion. Right? And we have evidence of that archaeologically. Right? At the temple, right, you would have had a, an official cult that at some point would have become monotheist, though it probably wasn't at the beginning completely. Right? There would have been, for example, there was the, te- the, the Bible says there was an Asherah in the temple for two-thirds of its existence, the first temple. And then it was purged. It was taken away along with other symbols of other gods. Um, and um, only monotheist symbols were kept in the temple. But folk religion, like the religion of people of the countryside, I'm sure that that religion continued to include stuff that we would not today consider monotheism, up until the exile. What happens in the exile, which is in like 722, I think, 
that's wrong. Five, five, five eighty-six. Thank you, Judy. Um, in five eighty-six BCE, right? The Jews are taken to Babylonia, but it's not the whole people. The people who are taken to Babylonia are the people who live in Jerusalem. They're the elite. They're the, the wealthy people, the royal court. Right? Not all the peasants are taken to Babylonia. They don't bother. But they take the entire intellectual strata of the people. Right? And the way that and the reason they did this was to uproot, right? If you uproot people from their land, you uproot people from their culture. Right? They have to assimilate into your culture because everything that kept them who they are, you know, begins to vanish. Now, the Jews were brilliant, and they managed to, most people, when that happens to them, they lose their culture, or they lose a lot of their culture. Um, it didn't, like, the Jews were able to keep their culture, and they really seemed to be able to do it by sort of stripping away a lot of the diversity of, of the folk religion of ancient Israel, and clinging to this very tight core, like, we're going we're gonna to use the Torah, we're going to worship God. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to intermingle with the people around us. We're not going to marry the people around us. Um, and they created this very portable version of Israelite religion that became Judaism. And the proof in the pudding is that when they went back to ancient, right, about a generation later, they received permission from King Darius of Babylon to go back, right, to go back and resettle the land. When they, and that, that's when they build the second temple, right? When they resettle the land, they meet the peasantry, and they're like, who are you people? They had no, they, and they, had, they were like, oh, we don't know who you are, your practices are totally messed up. And they basically reject the villagers because they say, you're not practicing Judaism, we don't know what you're practicing. So you can see that by going to Babylonia, they basically recreated their culture. So that such that by the time they got back, right, they didn't recognize the local culture. Um, and in fact, that local culture became the Samaritans. Right. The Samaritans are descended from that, that indigenous culture. Um, so, prob so the answer is probably in the transition to exile was when radical monotheism really became the thing for Jews. Not that there weren't monotheistic tendencies before, but that... You know, they really radically pruned everything else. Um, and, but in some way, and, and in some way this image remains. Like maybe even because of the book of Proverbs, in some way this image of the, of the, of the sacred woman remained sort of in seed form almost. And then you just sort of added water and it sprouted again. You know, the second they needed the image back, you know, they got it back. Um, but I think that's that's at least the answer to a question that makes sense to me. I think it was a period. Can you say it louder, your question? Was Babylonian the time in which they refined Judaism? They took the local folklore or Portuguese out of it and said, This is what we need. And is that more inclined with what we practice today? You could, you could look at it that way. I mean, I look at it as a period of radical stress. They were under tremendous stress, and when religions are under stress, they become very conservative. Um, so there really wasn't space for the diversity that there had been space for. Like, they wanted something pure that was going to stick. They also were looking for, they felt that they had done something wrong, right? They felt that God was mad at them, right? Or why would they have been conquered? So this story about why was God mad at us was when well, we worshipped other gods, and that was why God was mad at us. 
Um, it's not the only story. In Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah has an argument with a bunch of women. And he says to them, you know, this, these bad things are happening to us because we're worshiping other gods. And they say to him, the bad things are happening to us because we stopped worshiping the Queen of Heaven. When we were worshiping the Queen of Heaven, everything was fine. Right? <laughs> you know, we stopped worshiping her, and now everything is awful. We're going, and so you can see, you know, there were multiple narratives about why everything was awful. Um, but, you know, the narrative the Jewish people kept was God was mad at us because we were worshiping other gods. So you can see how that would create radical monotheism, right? So God doesn't want us to do that. We're not going to do that anymore. Uh, so things that had been tolerated were no longer tolerated. So in terms of things yeah. popping up over time, and over yeah. death is just another image of something popping up? Yeah, no, the, the, the golden calf, okay, so here's the gold. The golden calf is totally, uh, right, I'm, I'm probably not going to say this in shul when I give my drash on Friday, but you guys have to know the golden calf is a political narrative. It has nothing to do with what to write spiritually. It's a political narrative. The north of Israel had calves that were God's throne. They were the focus of worship in northern Israel. In southern Israel, in Jerusalem, they had cherubim. Right? They didn't want people to have calves, they wanted people to have cherubim. That's why Parshat Chikisa says the cherubim are okay and calves are not okay. All right, It has totally to do with the economic uh, um, structure of pilgrimage. Right, They wanted them to go to the cherubim and not the calves. That is what that theory is about. They were both icons. Yes, they were both icons being used in ancient Israel. So um, why do we interpret it as... as because we're pious Jews and not critical biblical theorists, that's why. Whoever wrote um, Exodus, that's right. what you're saying, Look, or edited. I'm, I'm, what I'm proposing is, you know, it's, it's one way of reading this story. It is not the only way of reading the Golden Calf story. But I tend to get annoyed with sort of all the, the pieties around, oh, how horrible, oh my god, the golden calf, how terrible, we deserve to be punished for the next 15 generations. Um, you know, the calf is there because there were calves in northern Israel. They're mentioned in the book of Samuel. Uh, they were used as pilgrimage focuses. So, and, right, right, so by having a story about how the people erroneously and foolishly worship a golden calf, Right, the Torah is saying, right, forget about the calves in northern Israel, right? They are wrong. You want to go to Jerusalem where the cherubim are. That's where you want to go. Exactly. Right. Hmm? Right. Um, so, I mean, if you guys want to get hot and bothered about the golden calf, that's fine with me. But I, I, I have to tell you what I'm talking about. <laughs> I will say a little bit about it on Friday night, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to. Um, but I, I'm going to say something else on Friday night. But I, I, but I want you guys to know like, that is the meaning of that story. <laughs> um, okay, back to Lady Wisdom. It's like Macy's and Gimbals. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think what I want to do now, is there anything else here I really want to show you? Uh, I guess the only thing is we really ought to look at um, at, at, uh, at Asia Kyle, uh, which is on pages um, 29 and 30, I think. Um, is she really here? No, you know what, I think that I not give you the right page. 
Oh no, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. It looks like this. It's um. Yeah. Well, it doesn't really start. It. it I think I might have misnumbered. It looks like this. Yeah. What horrified is a capable wife? Exactly. Yeah, that's there it, right? it is. So this is the. Yeah. So. For a lot of Jews, right, this is a poem that you know because it's recited to the women of the house um, at Friday night. What a rare find is a capable wife. Um, maybe, I guess we should read it just because I am probably not everybody is familiar with it. Um, Judith, you want to read a little bit? I could find it. Where are we? Right here. Okay. It's six, it's one six five four in the biblical pagination numbers. Um, it doesn't have a number. Comes after twenty eight. Yeah, comes What a rare find is a capable wife. Her worth is far more is far beyond that of rubies. Her husband puts his confidence in her and lacks no good thing. She is good to him, never bad. All the days of her life, she looks for wool and flax and sets her hand to them with a will. She is like a merchant fleet, bringing her food from afar. She rises while it is still night and supplies provisions for her household, the daily fare of her maids. She sets her mind on an estate and acquires it. She plants a vineyard by her own labors. She girds herself with strength and performs her tasks with vigor. She sees that her business thrives. Her lamp never goes out at night. She sets her hand to the dis distaff. Her fingers work the spindle. There's more? This goes on the other page, yeah. It's on the back. Oh, there you okay. go. Um, she gives generously to the poor. Her hands are stretched out to the needy. She is not worried for her household because of snow, for her whole household is dressed in crimson. She makes covers for herself. Her clothing is linen and purple. Her husband is prominent at the gates. As he sits among the elders of the land, she makes cloth and sells it and offers a girdle to the merchant. She is clothed with strength and splendor. Her, she looks to the future cheerfully. Her mouth is full of wisdom, her tongue with kindly teaching. She oversees the activities of her household and never eats the bread of idleness. Her children declare her happy, her husband praises her. Many women have done well, but you surpass them all. Grace is deceptive, beauty is illusionary. It is for her fear of the Lord that a woman is to be praised. Extol her from the fruit, for the fruit of her hand, and let her works praise her in the gates. Thank you. I don't know, man. How perfect can you be? Yeah, really. <laughs> Yes. Well, that's the question. Yeah, that's exactly. So Judy's asking the question. I want to ask you: Is this a real person? Right. All joking aside, how was it written? Right. Well, she sounds like a real person, right? Like, I mean, I mean, not that we can all do these things, but she's written as a human being, right? She's got a husband. She's got children. Um, she does all these things. She. Um, provides cloth and food and, and um, is wise and gives to the poor and uh, some people really hate this poem because it's like an impossible image. Right. You, can't, you can't measure up to this right. and it seems like if somebody says that to you it's like 
you're going to fail. It's like you're set up to fail. It seems almost like a judgment if it's actually spoken to you. Right. So you could see this as being like the Virgin Mary, right? An impossible image for a human being to live up to. Now, in later Kabbalah, this becomes about the Shekhinah. The later Kabbalah understands this to be about Shekhinah. That it's, it, they see it as this is actually the image of the Divine Feminine. I don't think that's crazy. I think that actually this Eshekayo is based on Lady Wisdom, right? And, you know, we could see her as she's being depicted as a human, but really she's kind of a divine being, right? I mean, human beings can't do all this stuff. Um, so it's not clear to me whether the image is of a human person or a divine person. Can I ask you about the end, though? The end is almost like... But in a way, all this stuff doesn't count because it's all illusionary. No, 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 no. no. What does all this mean? What does that mean? All right, so when it says grace, it means that, right, when it says grace is deceptive and beauty is illusory, right, it means, right, it's not about being beautiful, right? It's not that she's beautiful, right? She is industrious and kind and wise and all those things, but she's not beautiful or anyway. That's not the point, right? It's The point is that she is, is um, she's abundant, right? She is productive. Um, she is taking care of, of her household. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that this is a problematic image, right? It's, it's a perfect image. It's, it's not, of course, like there, um, there aren't perfect images of, I mean, Psalms, you know, presents perfect images of people that are hard to live up to also. Um, Would you interpret it also as a stereotypic role in more modern times? Sure. You know, that, that it is. Although she's not really a Victorian wife, right? I mean, she's. This is not a Victorian wife, right? She doesn't sit inside her household and just take care of her, her husband and children. She she negotiates with fleets and she um, she buys land and she right. It's like she does it all. Yeah, exactly. She does almost everything. <laughs> I, what does the husband do? <laughs> yes. He writes about it. <laughs> Constantly, it's it's the constantly industrious housewife, right? She does everything. So yes, it is a stereotypical image, and probably not one we would want to live up to today. Although you know, many women like having this poem recited to them. Some people really hate it because it's you know it's sort of this impossible image and a very stereotyped image, right? This woman isn't learning. She doesn't seem to have a profession exactly, right? Um, She's uh, a natural woman. She's got, you know, her mouth is full of wisdom. It's sort of like there's something that's um, biological. You don't have to learn that that kind of thing. Right, right. What is it? What does it mean? What does it mean in this context? Uh, it is. Uh, it is for her fear of the Lord. What is? Yerat is reverence for God. I mean, it's really just how you would understand it today. It really means that she's um, she's pious, right? She obeys God's command. She runs a pious household, right? She's, this is an Israelite woman, right? So we're talking about Israelite religion, right? She's honor, she honors God and does what God wants her to do. Right? That's what, how we should understand Yerat Adonai. Um, and remember that earlier in the book, we heard Rishit Chochma Yerat Adonai, right? Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, so there is this sense, and uh, Proverbs has great um, respect for piety. It's just not piety that's detailed in like really specific, like it's it's not really about very specific. Um, it's not like Leviticus, right? It's not all about you know tiny ritual laws. It's about general piety, right? Being a good person, right? Being uh, right, doing the doing what your society thinks you ought to do. This is, I mean, I'm sorry. 
Oh yeah, Yira means fear. Um, it also means reverence, but it means fear. Yeah, it's um. I mean, the idea is right. You were worried that God would be mad. You should be worried that God would be mad at you, right? That's um. That's not always so palatable today. But the idea in the Bible is right. God expects that you will be concerned about offending. Yeah. Well, there's a line right? of that in the Torah. Right. That. Right. Right. It, it, it doesn't mean a sort of terror in the sense that you would be afraid of a monster, right? It doesn't mean that. Um, it means, um, you know, in the way that a hierarchical society understands relationships between higher-ups and lower-downs, right? That you should like them, right? But you should also be afraid of them. You should also be afraid of their anger. You should want to please them, right? That's the, you know, in a hierarchical system, right? That's how it works between, right, across... Um, Hierarchy. Right. And, and, you know, that might be another reason that this image doesn't work so well for us today. Um, but the Hasidim, for example, the Hasidu doesn't really love this idea of fear of God. But they see fear of God as the lower quality, right? Ahavat, right? Love of God is considered to be the, the higher spiritual quality. But that's not necessarily true in the Bible. Right, um, that's um, that's a later concept because you know we've been around for a couple of thousand years. You know we've changed our minds a few times about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, as a backup, a little fear doesn't hurt. Huh? As a backup, a little fear doesn't hurt. Right. Well, you know if if, 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 if right if the if the if the egalitarian stuff isn't working, right? That's a, um, it's it's a question, right? Does one require? fear, right, in order to, uh, you know, have the societal laws that work. Like, what, is, what does that mean? So we need to wrap up, and I also know they probably need to give the table to somebody else. Um, I do. You need to, you need to eat a little I ate half. That is not half. All right. Well, anyway, if anybody wants my half of the pie, that's okay with me. Um, so I guess I'll just conclude. So it's good to, um, it's really good to talk about this with you. Well, thank you for your questions. Oh, um, this is wonderful. It's great. And, um, yeah, so next time we're going to look at, um, Lamentations Rabbah, I think. I think that's next. And we're going to, uh, study the, the earliest images of the Shekhinah as a, as a, a woman who goes into exile with her children. Uh, so, uh, we're going to take a look at that next time.